Dear congregation, in the last week we celebrated Reformation Day. So I'd like to use this opportunity to speak from the Word of God as it pertains to Reformation, the, the Reformation of the 16th century, from which, of course, our, our uh, churches have their name, Reformed. The text for the sermon this evening is Hosea 4, verse 17. Ephraim is joined to idols. And so, using uh, the the basic idea of reformation, my friends, I'd like to speak to you about lessons that we can take with us from Reformation Day. And in the first place, to think about what is a reformation. Because already we have, we have uh, so much that we can take just from the term itself. Now the term reformation implies that there was once a, a uh, place where we stood from which we slipped. And reformation implies that we return to it again. When we apply the term reformation to Christian people, we are talking about Christian people who were saved, who loved the Lord Jesus Christ, were serving Him with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. But from that place, they slipped. And reformation implies that they've now returned to it again. That's all wrapped up in that term, Reformation. And when we think of the Reformers themselves, that's exactly the work that they were doing. That's why we call them the Reformers. Because the church, as it had come out of the hands of the apostles and was given into the hand of the the first fathers of the church and then went through the medieval times, but during that time there was this steady decline of the church. It had started so strong, so glorious, and so beautiful And we're studying that now in our morning service in the book of Acts. And I think that many times we come away from those sermons thinking, what a time that must have been to live in. In those first days of the church, when their zeal was so strong, when their enthusiasm was so bright, and when they were just full of joy and enthusiasm for the gospel. But alas, my friends, we know that it it didn't stay that way, did it? And there was this steady decline and we're, we're so thankful to God. That's why we celebrate. That's why we say celebrate, right? We celebrate Reformation Day because it was in the 16th century, right? In the 1500s, when God raised up men to say, no, stop. This is not right. And to return the church to the scriptures, to return the church back to the Bible, back to Christ alone, back to faith alone, right? Back to the glory of God alone. We know all those things. It wasn't that the church never knew that before. By the way, I I put on your outline there, it it was never the intent of the Protestant reformers to start a new church. Not one of them. Not one of them had the idea in their mind, I'm going to break away from the Roman Catholic Church and start a new church. That was not their intent. Their intent was to be reformers. Their intent was to take the church as they found it and as they grew up in it and to reform it more closely to the Word of God. I put that quote on there from Timothy George, a church historian living today. The last thing in the world Luther wanted to do was start a new church. He was not an innovator, but a reformer. He never considered himself anything other than a true and faithful member of the one holy community.
Catholic and Apostolic Church. Well, my friends, that thought of being reformed brought me to this sermon this evening, the need for reformation. The theme of the sermon this evening, the central point of the, of the sermon this evening is very simple. The people of God need reformation days. And, and I put that in plural. Reformation days. Make sure you get that if you're taking notes. The people of God need reformation days. And the constant recurrence of Reformation Day in the last of October always brings back to our minds the need that we as the people of God have for Reformation. There's the theme. The people of God need Reformation Days. Why? What is the reason? Why do we need Reformation Days? The reason too, my friends, is very simple. Because the people of God... We as Christians are always subject to this slow, sometimes imperceptible decline in spiritual things. I think in a previous sermon in this church, I called it spiritual entropy. The fact of our walk of faith, our walk of, of, with God day by day, my friends, is that we are subject to this constant and imperceptible, at least to us, imperceptible decline in the things of God. And it's something that we saw clearly represented in the Reformation of the 16th century. Sometimes people will ask, when was the Roman Catholic Church founded or when did it begin? Well, it's impossible to say. It's impossible to fix a point in history at which it began. Why? Because it was this slow incremental, step-by-step decline. And there is no one point in history when we can say, okay, there is where they crossed the line. No, it began all the way back, certain things. Let me just take an example. So in the, in the book of Acts, we read how there were elders appointed by Paul and, and very likely voted on by these congregations to serve as the men who were to lead the church and take responsibility for the church. Well, over time, one elder, perhaps especially gifted, kind of rose to the top, and he became known as the bishop of the church. That already is, again, leaving behind the plurality of elders that we see in the scripture, right? Each elder with, his, with, the, with equal power, equal authority in the church to serve. And then over time, why, if you were an elder in a large church in one of these large cities, like the city of Alexandria or the city of Constantinople or even the city of Ephesus, as we uh, have been considering in the morning services, why then you became known as an archbishop, right? And you can see where this is going, right? So that now these archbishops had authority over the bishops who had authority over the elders, and you see this hierarchy beginning to form. This is the Episcopal form of church government, which we reject in the Reformed Church as a tradition of man that grew over time, but that is, not in, that is not consistent with the scriptures. At least the practice of the scripture as we see in the apostolic churches. Now that in itself is not such a serious error until you get the one bishop who's the bishop of Rome and over time he comes to believe that he is infallible 
And soon enough, he persuades the whole church that he's infallible. And now, my friends, the Roman Catholic Church has put itself in a place where it cannot be reformed. How can you be reformed if you think you are infallible? That's not possible. You understand me this evening? That once you take on that position, that you can speak at a certain time and in a certain place, and the speaking of your, whatever it is that you say, whatever truth you articulate, is infallible, then you have just shut yourself off from all possibility of being reformed. And that's a very, very serious error. And that's why as Reformed churches, we reject that. The very word Reformed churches, right, implies that there is always this need for that process of reform. Why? The reason? Because there's always that decline. Institutions decline. It's sad, but it's the truth. Now, my friends, let's go to the Scripture. What does the Scripture teach us about that? Is that something that we find taught in the Bible? And the interesting thing about the sermon tonight, my friends, I did take a text, Hosea 4, verse 17, and I will reference that shortly. But really, the scripture that I'm going to bring to bear tonight is not verses of scripture. It's not even a chapter. It's books. We have whole books of the Bible dedicated to this very thesis of, of documenting, to use a contemporary term, documenting the fact of this decline. Let's go there. Let's go to the book of Judges. If there's any book in the, old in the Bible period that demonstrates to us this fact that the people of God are always, not necessarily, I'm not going to say that, but are always subject to this slow decline away from God and away from spiritual things, it's the book of Judges. How many of you, my friends, have read the book of Judges and you get done thinking that is the most bizarre book? I mean, the things that are... How many remember the story of the, of the, of the woman that was chopped into 12 pieces and then they mailed the, her body parts? I mean, you read that and you think to yourself, what? What am I reading? You are reading, my friends, what God, by his Holy Spirit, has preserved for us in writing. What happens to a people as they decline? That's the reason, the very reason the book of Judges was given us. Why is this book in the Bible? Well, let's read. Look, look with me at Judges 3 and verse 12. Judges 3 and verse 12. Now the sons of Israel again. And the key word here is again. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And I'm just going to stop right there. Judges 3 and verse 12. Keep turning to chapter 4. How much farther do we have to read before we hear this constant, repeated refrain again? Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Let's keep going. Let's turn to chapter 10 in the book of Judges. Chapters 10 and verse 6. Chapter 10 and verse 6. I think you could probably read it to me now, right? Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, my friends, when we find these repeated expressions in the Bible, these are the clues as to why the Spirit of God has these books in the Bible in the first place. There's something we're supposed to hear 
in these verses. And then the last one is 13 verse 1. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And of course, even just reading the whole book of Judges, right? We know that it's a constant, repeated thing. Israel is rescued by God. God raises up some hero, whether it's Samson or Jephthah or Gideon. God raises up some hero to rescue his people. And what happens? Slow, steady, sometimes not very slow, but at any rate, a decline. And God will raise, and then God causes all kinds of problems for them, right? God brings the Midianites. God brings these ites or these ites, right, to come and attack them and to plunder them. God raises up another hero. God, in his mercy, hears their cries, and he saves them. The book of Judges, my friends, is in the Bible to teach us this truth, that God's people are always subject to this kind of decline. Then the chapter that we read together, 2 Kings 17, we are again told by the Spirit of God, why did Israel go off into Assyria? Why were the ten tribes taken off to Assyria? Why were the two tribes in the south taken off into Babylon several hundred years later? Was it because God had forgotten his covenant promises to his people? Was it because he had... What was the issue here? My friends, it was because God was keeping the promise that he had made to them in the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is like the constitution of the Israelite nation. And in the, book of, in, the, in the book of Deuteronomy, God had made it crystal clear to his people that if you do these things, idolatry and the like, you will regret it. You will be plundered. And finally, I will cast you off as my people. And that's what we have. We are told in verse 7 of 2 Kings 17, as we read it, now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. And it's very important what follows next. Sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods. So God had saved them. God had rescued them. He had brought them out of Egypt, and they had declined. And now God has cast them from his presence. And the dark, dark statement we have at the end of verse 23. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. My friends, that gives us now an understanding of the function of these historical books in the Bible. I think sometimes when we read like the book of Joshua and the book of Judges, the book of Kings, right, we begin to ask ourselves, why are these books in the Bible? And furthermore, why are the particular stories in those books, why are those the stories that are given us? And now we have a clue, don't we? Now we have the answer that the Spirit of God inspired some anonymous person. We don't even know who wrote these books, or even whether, very likely it wasn't even written at one single time, but that these stories were added and, and grew. And that at the end there was some editor who, who, who shaped all these books together. But all under the inspiration of the Spirit of God that we, in 2023, might have a record of what happens to the people of God. Of what we are to expect in the life of of the people of God. Now when we turn to the prophetic books 
when we come to the prophets, what do we find them saying? Not so long ago, we had a sermon here on Ezekiel 16. Do you remember that sermon? It was called A Failure to Remember, where we talked about that young woman who was discovered in her blood. Uh, She wasn't a young woman then. She was just an infant, but she had been born, and she'd been cast out. She was laying in her blood, kicking around in her blood, and remember, the man discovered her, and he raised her up to be a beautiful young woman. And remember all the wickedness and all the unfaithfulness that she had shown. The same story, isn't it? So the prophets are now taking Israel's history and bringing it back to Israel's mind and saying, you can't keep acting like this. You can't keep going back into idolatry. You can't keep being spiritually unfaithful and expect that God is not going to hear, see it and respond to it. Jeremiah 2 Verse 23 and 25. We have the prophet Jeremiah saying these things. Jeremiah 2 and verse 23. How can you say I am not defiled? So here's the prophet Jeremiah, God speaking through Jeremiah to the people of Israel. How can you say I am not defiled? I have not gone after the Baals. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift young camel entangling her ways. A wild donkey accustomed to the wilderness that sniffs the wind in her passion. In the time of her heat, who can turn her away? All who seek her will not become weary. In her month, they will find her. Now here's a very graphic description of a wild donkey who's in heat. And she's constantly wandering away away, seeking a mate. And this is the picture that God sets before his people Israel and says, you are like that donkey. You are like that swift young camel. And all you do is wander off. As soon as, you, as soon as I do something for you, as soon as I rescue you, as soon as I show myself to you, you love me. But it seems that as soon as after that, you just you start to wander off. It's like you can't help yourself. Again, what a picture of Israel's constant tendency to decline. And then in Hosea 4, my friend, that's the text that I put at the head of the sermon. Ephraim, says Hosea, Ephraim is joined to idols. Now, Ephraim is the, uh, a name for the ten tribes in the north, but Ephraim is joined to idols. You might say Ephraim is in covenant, is, is married to idols. Again, you see the thought here that no matter what God says to his people, they just They don't seem to be able to help themselves. They don't seem to be able to deliver themselves. They're in some kind of grip of idolatry. And they tend towards idolatry as soon as they are, uh, as soon as they're, you might say, on their own. Quickly, in the New Testament, we have Stephen saying in Acts 7 and verse 52, that speech he gives in Acts chapter 7. He says, which one of the prophets, this is in Acts 7 verse 52, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. So the situation hasn't changed since Stephen. All your fathers killed the prophets, and now you killed the very greatest of the prophets, the Messiah himself. And then, my friend, if I can bring you back to what I touched on already this morning, but the Apostle Paul constantly telling Timothy to watch yourself. Let me quickly go through these verses here. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 7. 
but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That's 1 Timothy 4 and verse 7. And then 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. 4 verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. That's the verse that I quoted this morning. And then chapter 5, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 22. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Why, my friends, does Paul continually return to this instruction to Timothy? Watch yourself. Because Paul understands this constant tendency in our own life to decline. It is a, it is a imperceptible, but it is a sure thing that our life, it's as if our, our Christian life is on a hill. And unless we are intentional to resist it, we slowly slip down that incline. That's the truth which Paul recognized and which he explained to those Ephesian elders, which I said I'd return to that tonight, and now I do. There you see Paul continually exhorting Timothy to watch himself. Watch for that slip, that constant decline. My friends, I move to my points of application. In the first place, when we celebrate the Reformation, we celebrate God's saving grace in our lives. That's what the Reformation did for us. We praise God that he brought back to our minds that salvation is purely a matter of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And our salvation is based completely on Faith alone in that perfect sacrifice. And we rely entirely on the scriptures to teach us about these things. We lay aside all human traditions and we live our life to the glory of God alone. It was the Reformation that brought these truths back to our minds. Many of us were raised in these truths. It's possible, my friends, that there's someone here this evening who was not raised in these things. And you can remember the joy, the excitement when you first discovered these truths. I met many of these people in my previous line of work at the seminary. How they loved the truths of the Reformation. And I trust that there was that time in our life too when these truths began to seep into our minds, when we began to understand them and the joy and the enthusiasm that we had in the grace of God to us. That in the first place, we recognize God's saving grace. The Reformation from us for us, is like the exodus out of Egypt for Israel. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, and when God brought us out of all the ungodly traditions that had grown up in his church, we praise God for what he's done in our life through the Reformation. But my friends, in the second place, my second application, we recognize, or when we celebrate the Reformation, we recognize our enemies. When we celebrate the Reformation, we recognize our enemies. That there's an enemy within, there's an enemy without. There is an enemy without, my friends, and I've said it many times, and you know it well, that Satan never rests. He works day and night. 
to drag your soul down to hell with him. And I especially hope that my young people, the young adults amongst us this evening, are listening today. Because there is a war for your soul. You can't see it. You can't hear it. But believe it. It's taking place. The prince of darkness, this great serpent, my friends, the great dragon that we read of in the book of Revelation, he is laying wait for your soul. Every day, he plans, he schemes, he plots how he can drag you down. He has so many tricks. And tonight, I want you to see that when we celebrate Reformation Day, we know that we have an enemy without us. Now, here's the sad truth that the people of God have learned by hard experience, and that is there is an enemy within us. That Satan doesn't just operate from without us to try to tempt us. He has a man on the inside. You understand that tonight? He has someone on the inside. There's a sin nature within us, my friends. There is this inclination to sin within us. There is this tendency to decline on the inside of us. Now, my friends, when we celebrate the Reformation, we recognize that these two enemies are constantly at work on our souls. And this is why we face this constant tendency to decline. This is why our spiritual life never just seems to grow by itself. This is why it always takes work. This is why we have to agonize to enter in at the straight gate, as Jesus told his followers. Because there's an enemy within and there's an enemy without. And so my third application simply follows from this second one. When we celebrate the Reformation, we own our constant need for Reformation days. This is something that's good about Reformation Day. There's many things we can talk about. There's many stories we could tell. But you know, last week when we were talking about the Ephesian, or two weeks ago, about the Ephesian Christians, and do you remember, my friends, how they had begun to use the magic that was so prevalent in the city of Ephesus? It had snuck into their lives. Perhaps they grew up using it. And they didn't stop using it when they became Christians. But when the preaching of Paul came and the power of the Spirit came in their life, they recognize that this magic is sinful and it needs to go. And they had a Reformation Day. They had a Reformation Day. They recognized that they'd been saved by the grace of God. But they also recognized that without them even realizing it, this sin had been allowed to live in their life. And so there was that need for reformation. And now, my friends, we also can look back. We can look at our own life and we can recognize this tendency that we have towards constant decline. This quote from Octavius Winslow, I'd like to read it with you again. I say again because I, this is the second time I've quoted this quote. If there is one consideration, Winslow writes, more humbling than another to a spiritually minded believer, it is that after all God has done for him, after all the rich displays of his grace, the patience and tenderness of his instructions, the repeated discipline of his covenant, the tokens of love received, and the lessons of experience learned, there should still exist in the heart a principle, the tendency of which is to secret, 
perpetual and alarming departure from God. Truly there is in this solemn fact that which might well lead to the deepest self-abasement before him. I lay that quote before you, dear congregation, and I ask you tonight, are you willing to own the truth of that statement? I know that's a humbling thing, isn't it? As Christians, we may very well not want to admit it. But just as I spoke to the young people before, I think if I looked at the elderly amongst us, you've probably learned this lesson more than many of us who perhaps have not lived as long as you. That there is in our heart, after all what God has done for us, and he's done amazing things for us, there still exists in our heart that constant tendency to secret, perpetual, and alarming departure from God. And this Reformation season, my friends, I call you to think about that tonight. To be honest with yourselves. To take a spiritual inventory. You see, my friends, the truth of it is that we would never stop coming to church. Right? We would never stop keeping the Lord's Day. These visible things, right, that people can see. We, we, can, we can continue to go through the motions of religion. There are these external things that we can do. We can pray before we eat. We can pray after we eat. Right? These things that are the normal routine of our spiritual life. Important and good things. But there can come a time in our life, my friends, when there's nothing of Christ in it. When there's no real devotion in it. There's nothing of the Spirit of God in it. You know, it can become just like an empty perfume bottle. You know what I mean? Sometimes you can pick up a perfume bottle. It's empty. There's no perfume in it. And if you smell, right, you can, you can still maybe smell the vestiges of, of something of what might have been in there at one point in time. But the actual perfume is gone. And you might say in your life, when did that happen? How did I come to be like this? Remember, that's what we read in the psalm this evening, right? That David says, Lord, I'm sinking in this quagmire. The waters are rolling over my head. How did I get this way? And you can ask yourself, too, that there's, if, if there's no heart for you, you come to church, but there's no desire for it. How many of us came through the doors tonight saying, Oh, Lord, how amiable are your tabernacles. Oh, Lord, my heart is longing and thirsting for the tabernacles of God. Now, I know it's not that way every time we come to church. But my friends, is it possible that we find ourselves in a situation and we're not quite sure how we got here, but slowly and imperceptibly, the constant attacks of Satan have begun to take their toll and the perfume has left the bottle. The Christ has left our religion. You know who has such a keen eye for this in our life? Is our children. Our children have some kind of uncanny way of knowing that the religion of their parents is just a routine, just an exercise. It's a scary thing, my friends, because when children see that, they're not attracted to that religion. I was just talking to a brother in the ministry this week, and we were talking about young people and children. 
And it was dreadfully convicting to the both of us. That even as pastors, my friends, our life can become very routine. And the perfume has left the bottle. And even the people in the church can begin to sense it. That even the pastor has lost his enthusiasm for the things of God. And then we stop. And in this third application, in October 31, we say, I need a Reformation Day. I need a Reformation Day. Things are not going in the right direction. My friends, that brings me to my happy fourth point. Because you can say it with tears, my friends. But do you remember that song that Luther wrote? God is our refuge. And so Luther still preaches to us tonight. He says there is a refuge. If there's someone here tonight, if there's someone here tonight who says, that's me. That's me. I find myself in a place tonight where I don't want to be. I've lost my enthusiasm. My prayer life testifies to it. My private devotional life testifies to it that I've slipped away from God. And I hate it. My friends, God is our refuge. And the reformers would say, solus Christus. There is a Christ for sinners. There is a Paul who preached, and he preached it to us this morning, repentance towards God. Faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't have to say anything else tonight, my friends, because that's the whole message of the gospel. The gospel, we often think that way, don't we, that the gospel is for unconverted people. But there may be somebody here tonight, my friends, who's been a Christian for many years, but you feel like you're unconverted tonight. You feel like a lost soul. You've drifted so far from God. My friends, on Reformation Day, I can preach to you the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ nailed to a cross, shedding his blood and bleeding for sinners. Bleeding not just for unconverted sinners, but bleeding for the people of God who have fallen away, slipped away from him. And my friends, let's face it. In a sense, doesn't that apply to all of us today? We all come to that place in our life where we begin to take these things for granted. And what a blessing it is when on Reformation Day I can preach again. and We can preach to ourselves, solus Christus. That in Christ alone we find all the strength, all the, the motivation we need to get back on track with God. To once again welcome the blessed ministry of the Spirit in our hearts. And to once again feel our heart flowing out in love for Jesus Christ. To rekindle the flame that God himself lit within our soul. This text is so meaningful in this regard. When Paul said in Galatians 6 verse 14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which, that means by that cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Is there someone tonight who struggles with worldliness? Is there someone here tonight, my friends, who struggles with love for the world? So many things out there that are appealing to you. So many things that are drawing you in. And even as our heart goes out to those things in the world, 
our heart begins to grow cold for Christ. Oh, what a blessed truth. I call you tonight, my friends, and Paul calls you, stand, take your place before the cross of Christ. Because when we stand before the cross of Christ, something else is crucified. The world is crucified to me. That means we can begin to see no value in it anymore. All those things that we chase in life, they become meaningless. They become, well, what did Paul say? I count them as loss and dung. A convicting message tonight, my friends, for you and for me. But I pray that this message would find us and would lead us and would bring us to the cross of Christ. And that we would find our strength in what all of the reformers found their strength. They all said it in Christ alone. May that be our rallying cry as we leave this building this evening. Let us pray. Lord, we confess to our shame that there has been within us this secret, perpetual, and alarming departure from you. Lord, we find it alarming now. And we confess that we often don't even see it happening. So slow and so imperceptibly it happens. But Lord, we pray that you would be our refuge and our strength this evening. And that the song that filled Martin Luther and the other reformers with so much courage and with so much strength, that it would continue to fill us with strength in 2023. And that the passage of time, Lord, hasn't decreased in one tiny speck the beauty and the power of those words. God is our refuge and our strength. The solus Christu, that in Christ alone we find all that we need to live and to die. That by the cross of Jesus Christ, the world can be crucified to us and we to it. Lord, please bless us then this evening as we contemplate these things and give us, O oh Lord, a spirit of true repentance, but also a spirit, Lord, of running, fleeing, taking refuge in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. On the bulletin, I was going to sing Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, but we did already sing that. Can we sing 536? I think it's quite a familiar tune. 536 in the red hymnal? 536 in the red hymnal? That's okay? Okay. Jesus calls us o'er the tumult of our life's wild, restless sea. Day by day, his sweet voice soundeth, saying, Christian, follow me. Let's sing all five verses of 536.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.